Hey, thank y'all for being here. And I'm already gonna have to change my story with the nine o'clock because uh, at nine o'clock this morning, it was pretty full in here. And I told them that we had plenty of space in 11. So you have made me out to be a liar. So anyway, we'll talk about that in staff tomorrow, I guess. But hey, um, if you participated in our pray for night this past Wednesday night, I wanna say thank you for that. Um, I was in, in the community yesterday at, at Outdoor Depot. <laughs> Can I get an amen? All you deer hunters, you know. And one of the owners of Outdoor Depot, he came to me and he said, I need to ask you something. And I said, what's that? He said, did your church gather together Wednesday night and go pray for schools all around our community? And I said, yeah. And I said, we, we met on Wednesday night at 6.30 and we went to 25 different schools and we just prayed on behalf of the teachers and the staff. And he sat there in awe and he just goes, I can't thank you enough for what Chestnut Mountain Church is doing for our community. And so if you were participating in that or even if you were praying at your home, I just wanna say thank you for being a part of that. Um, it was such a powerful night um, as we got to just to saturate the world, um, which is what we say around here a lot. Um, but this morning, we're gonna jump into 1 John chapter two. Now, um, you know, I'm gonna start this out kind of with a, with a, I always share my Cooperisms. If you know Cooper, Cooper's one of my, my twins, the little boy, and Cooper's got his own little sense of humor, and he was mad at me this morning because usually the Cooperisms are always dealing with humor. Okay, this is not humorous. And so I shared, I'm about to share something about Cooper, and this morning he goes, are you talking about me today? I said, yeah, Cooper, I am. He said, is it funny? I said, not today, buddy. So he was hitting me with a Bible out in the front lobby before the nine o'clock. He says, daddy, you better not say nothing. So, but just, to, you know, as a parent, the one thing that really breaks a parent's heart is when our children don't get along, when our children argue, when they fight, when they bicker, and it, and it breaks a parent's heart when we see this happen. Well, just about two weeks ago, we were at our camper and, and I got to experience it firsthand. Um, I got to watch Cooper. Um, like I said, he's 11. Deacon is four and a half, um, going on 17, I think, um, and bullheaded. Man, she's bullheaded. But I got to watching, and I could hear commotion breaking out in the camper, and I'm going, oh, no, this is not going to end well. And all of a sudden, here come they bust out of the camper. And, and they've, I don't know if y'all have seen how teenagers are doing this thing now where they get hoodies, and they'll take and put the hoodie on like they'll stick their legs through the arms and then they'll stick their arms down into the legs and they look like little monsters and it's just the creepiest looking little thing in the world. Well, all of a sudden here comes Deacon running out of the camper with Cooper's hoodie on. And so she's running out of the camper. Cooper's chasing her. He is mad. He's yelling, get out of my hoodie. You're going to stretch it. And so all of a sudden I could see it was just building up. He was ready to rip her from limb to limb. And I looked at him and said, Cooper, don't do it. Don't do it. And so he took a step back. And I said, now, Deacon, take the hoodie off. And let's give it back to Cooper. And so she starts trying to take it off. And of course, she's mad at me because I'm making her take it off. And, and then, you know, she almost had it completely done. She almost had all the way out. And she had gotten one arm stuck in the arm of the hoodie in her foot. And so she was jerking it out of the way. And I looked and I said, Cooper, don't do it. And he finally had reached his limit and he walked over there and he grabbed that hoodie and he grabbed it up underneath and he went and ripped it out from under her. And all of a sudden that little four and a half year old just fell flat on her back. So you can imagine all the screaming, all of the yelling. So me being the father that I am, I, you know, gently grabbed Cooper's hand and we walked into the camper together. 
And we prayed, right? <laughs> no, I jerked that sucker up by his arm and I drug him in that camper and my hand had a lot of fellowship with his rear end. To the point, you know, when your hand throbs after it's over and you're like, oh my God. Yeah, that's what happened. And so he's sitting on the edge of the couch in the camper just squalling. I go back outside to make sure Deacon still had a pulse and she was still alive and everything was good there. And so then I went back inside and I sat down on the couch beside Cooper and, and I began to explain to him. I said, Cooper, do you know why I spanked you? No. So I had to explain even more. And I said, Cooper, there's nothing that breaks my heart even more to know the potential that your sister will never like you. And I said, as a parent, my heart's desire is that I want my children to get along. And I don't want years from now, Deacon, to despise you because of the way you treated her when she was little. And I said, so Cooper, I love you, but I love you enough to tell you that this is not the way that you treat a brother or a sister. And so after, for the next three hours, I watched something miraculous. For the next three hours, Deacon was Cooper's best friend. He come out of the camper about 30 minutes later after he finished pouting and he walks in, Deacon, you wanna go on a bike ride? And so they, and I'm going, <laughs> this is a miracle from the Lord. And so I really, I thought, man, I'm the, I'm the greatest parent in the world. <laughs> I just fixed all that mess. But what I realized um, this week as I began to read through 1 John chapter two, I thought some miracle had happened, like what I said or maybe the way I responded to Cooper that some just supernatural love had been birthed for his four and a half year old sister. But after reading 1 John chapter two, I realized that that's not officially what happened if you would. Because what God and what the Holy Spirit began to reveal to me as I looked at 1 John chapter two is what Cooper did was what we as believers need to do. And he simply made up his mind that he was gonna love his little sister. He simply made up his mind that he was gonna love his little sister, but it was not because he understood that he needed to love her. But the reason that he loved her is this was his response in understanding how much I loved him. So when he responded to loving her, it was because he knew that daddy loved him and that daddy had his best interest in mind and that daddy wanted the best for his relationship with him and his sister. And so when I got to watch him love on her, what the Holy Spirit revealed to me is that it is not necessarily Cooper being supernaturally in love with his sister, but he loved me. And that was why he responded the way that he did. Deacon was just the beneficiary of his relationship with me. And so essentially that's what's going on in 1 John chapter two. You know, John's getting ready to again address these believers, but I love how John sets the tone in chapter two. If you look at chapter two, verse one, he starts it out. He says, my little children, my little children. So that right there sets the tone for the rest of this chapter because when someone would speak in this time of, of my little children, what this is helping us to understand is this is how the teachers would gently address their disciples, would gently address the ones that he was pouring into. And so again, just like last week, we see John's 
pastoral heart, if you would. He, he was a, addressing these believers. He was dressing the church and helping them to understand, look, little children, I love you enough. I love you enough that I'm gonna talk to you in a way because I love you. But look at what he continues to say. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now look, um, I kind of skipped over this, but what I wanna, for all you type A people, I know you've been looking at our first John chapter two, the reading plan, and tomorrow you should begin chapter what? Three, wrong, okay? There's entirely too much good stuff in chapter two to move on. So when you read this week, read first John chapter two again, because we're gonna be back in first John chapter two next week. Okay, so I just had to get that out so everybody didn't get here next Sunday and be confused. So I do apologize for that, but not really. Um, but as we see here, the first thing that he addresses with these believers, he says, my little children, my desire for you is that you don't sin. Duh. That's kind of what I was talking to Cooper about. Cooper, my desire is that you love your sister. My desire is that you would do the right thing. But then he says this, he says, my desire is that you don't sin. But then he recognizes very quickly that even as a follower of Jesus Christ, even as a believer, we are going to live a life that is in opposition to God's word. We, even as the believers, are not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. And so he's saying, look, my desire is I want you to live a sinless life. Yes, that would be all of our desires. But then he goes on to say what he says next. And he says, but if you sin, you have an advocate. If you sin, you have an advocate. Now, some of the misunderstandings and the teachings that were going on in this context were there were, there were false teachers that were explaining to the church that, hey, you can live a life of perfection. You can live a lifestyle of perfection. But what, what John understands is this completely contrary to God's word. Because we read in Romans, for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Guess who that leaves out? No one. That doesn't leave me out. It doesn't leave you out. It doesn't leave anyone. It says, for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And he says, look, my desire is that you don't fall short. But if you do, I wanna let you know that you have an advocate. That you have an advocate. But what I love about the timing of when he tells them you have an advocate is absolutely mind-blowing. Because our performance-based world would tell us that we have an advocate when we're doing the right things. That when, okay, well, you know what? Jesus will be my advocate if I learn to read the Bible more. Jesus will be my advocate if I start going to church more. Jesus will be my advocate only if I overcome this sin. But that's not what John says at all. He says, Jesus is our advocate if and when we sin. 
Can I tell you as a believer, that is the greatest news that we could ever hear? That even in spite of our failures, God is not waiting on our perfection to love us and to care for us and to nurture us. And the reason is because Jesus Christ, our advocate, is saying that sin is the very thing that I died for. That is the very thing that I died for. So John is saying here, look, my heart's desire is that you don't sin, but when you do, you got an advocate that's doing the work on your behalf. And I know you may wonder, well, what, how in the world can we relate Jesus to advocate? What does that really mean? And advocate does come from a, um, from a, a lawyer's mindset. And so this advocate would be classified as our defense attorney. Meaning that the judge, that God is, is standing there waiting to judge, but Jesus, our advocate, is interceding on our behalf, meaning he's coming to us every time we need to be forgiven. He is standing at the Father's right hand on our behalf, pleading our case. But just like in a courtroom, we've got our defense attorney. But I just shared a moment ago in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that we also have an accuser. We also have an accuser who is trying to highlight, highlight and point to every sin and mistake, especially that we as believers make. But he says here, he says, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God, the authority, his Christ have come for the accuser, which is the enemy, which is Satan of our brethren has been thrown down and he who accuses them before our God day and night. So I know we always talk about that God doesn't rest, that God is always interceding on our behalf, but we read there that this is the very tactic of the enemy as well. He doesn't sleep. He is constantly accusing us before the throne of God. He is constantly bringing attention to our failures. He's constantly bringing attention to our mistakes and our shortcomings and us living in opposition to God's word. But guess what? This is when the advocate steps in and as the enemy has, the, has God's ear and he says, look, look at what he's doing. He, you thought he overcome that. He's already fell back into it. And Jesus, the advocate says, ah, it's paid for. That one's paid for. But, but wait a minute. They, they've already told everybody you delivered them from this or you delivered them from pornography or you delivered them from alcoholism or you delivered them from drug addiction. But wait a minute. God, Jesus says, ah, it's paid for. It's paid for. That's what I died for. And so the accuser, he continues to come at God. But guess what? Jesus stands in your place day in and day out. And he says, paid for, paid for. That's what I did at the cross. So while, while Satan constantly points out our sin, Jesus Christ, our advocate, continues to say, paid for. Now, here's kind of changing gears and a side note. Because there's a lot of false teachings, I guess you would say, that a lot of people will say things like, well, you know what, if you'll... If you'll uh, repent from this sin, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, it'll go away. 
You know, and you won't, I know you've made some bad decisions in your life. And, and if you truly repent, then God will take all of those consequences away. God will take all of those bad things away so that you don't have to walk through a dark time. Can I tell you right now that when we make bad decisions that are in opposition to God's word, while yes, we will not be held accountable when we stand before the throne, the judgment seat of Christ. We will not be held accountable for that because it will be wiped as far as the east is from the west. However, here on this earth, guess what? When we make bad decisions, when we listen to our flesh, when we listen to the temptation of the enemy, there are still going to be earthly consequences that we have to face while we're here. But what I want to remind you of is this. Because a lot of times we'll make, we'll have to face some terrible consequences based off our own decisions. And we'll have some emotional moment where we say, hey, I surrendered that. God, why in the world are these consequences not gonna go away? And then all of a sudden when those consequences don't go away, guess what we do? We get mad at God. And we say, God, I thought you loved me. If you truly loved me, then you wouldn't make me continue to walk through what I'm having to walk through. But here's what I want you to understand before we go anywhere this morning. We are very quick to cast blame on God for our ignorance and our disobedience. Church, it's time we own up to our own fleshly desires. We can't make a mistake and then expect God just to bail us out and make everything disappear. Because if you're a true follower of Christ, you came to a point where there was a decision in the road. You either went left or you went right. And I can almost guarantee you, if you will go back to that decision time, the Holy Spirit may have been telling you to go left, but everything in your flesh wanted you to go right. But in the moment, how many times do we buy into listening to our flesh rather than direction of the Holy Spirit? I can say it happens to me all the time. There's times in my marriage where the Holy Spirit is telling me, boy, shut your mouth. But my flesh says, I gotta prove a point. Guess what? It don't ever end well. Is that God's fault? No, it's my ignorant fault. But church, we've got to get back to the basics of where we're owning our own decision and understand that God is not standing up on the throne room of heaven waiting to punish us. But we've got to make sure that we quit casting blame when the Holy Spirit was gently speaking. The Holy Spirit was leading us in the direction he wanted us to go. But when it came decision time, we loved our flesh more than we did him. We loved our flesh more than we did him. But you know what the beauty of an advocate? Even when we choose our flesh, even when we make bad decisions, Jesus don't stop. He's still at the right hand of the Father saying, paid for. That one's paid for. That one's paid for. And I don't know about you, but that... It's very humbling. That is very humbling that even when I don't choose him, he chooses me. 
Even when I don't listen to him, even when I reject him, he is still advocating on my behalf as a believer in Jesus Christ. But you know, once we begin to understand that love, once we begin to understand what he's doing on our behalf, church, it creates a response. It has to create a response. Look at verses three through six. He says, by this, we know that we have came to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him but does not know his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. I want you to underline verse six. I want you to highlight it. I want you to put it on a t-shirt. I want you to do whatever you want to with it, but we've got to remember this. But the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. We ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. Now look, this isn't saying that we walk in the same manner that Christ walked so God will love us. It's so that we understand that we've got an advocate Christ who is interceding on our behalf and it creates a response in us that when we understand a love like that, then we want to abide by that and we wanna walk in the same manner that he did. It's a response. It's a response when we understand what that love looks like. So the more we understand him, the more we're compelled to live for him. You see, that's what happened with Cooper in the camper that day. Cooper understood that daddy loved me. And the reason that Cooper went and he served Deacon was in response to understanding how much I loved him. And that as an earthly father, I was going to love him unconditionally. And it created a response in him that appeared to be a miracle. Because there are times that Deacon is not lovable. How many of you know people in this room that aren't lovable? Raise your hand if you know somebody. Oh, y'all bunch of liars if your hand ain't up. We all know a lot of... Look. Abby's back there going, and look at Amanda. She's back there. They're, they're holding both hands up. I wonder who they're probably talking about me. But anyway, but this is exactly the response that is called for is that we are to walk in the same manner that he did. So what is that manner? What does that manner look like to walk in the same manner that he walked in? He goes on to explain that in verses seven through 11. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is in the word which you have heard. And on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 
But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and he walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What John just described is, in my opinion, which you may not even care about my opinion and I probably need to keep it to myself, but what he just described is the most impactful attribute of a follower of Christ. You know, it's really simplified. The most impactful attribute of a follower of Christ is not based off of if we don't cuss. It ain't based off of if we drink or we don't drink or we smoke or we don't smoke. It doesn't matter what you watch on TV. I'm not, well, I don't say it doesn't matter. It's not based off of all of those things. But the greatest, most influential attribute of a follower of Christ is how do we love? How do we love? Because, you know, in the English language, that word love, it is losing its value. It's losing its value. But Jesus, and you don't have to turn there for the sake of time, but in in John, John writes again in John chapter 13, verses 35. John writes this. He says in verse 35, but it's actually the words of Jesus. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all men, men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So church, how do we love people? How are we loving people? Like I said a minute ago, that that word love is losing its value. I was thinking about it in a very simple-minded way, which is about the only way I know how to think. But the fact that I can stand here and tell you that I love a hamburger and I can follow it up and tell you that God loves me, that's a little misleading. That is a little misleading that I can even compare what loving a hamburger looks like when it comes to God loving me. And so I had to ask myself the question, well, if I'm to walk in the manner of the way that Christ walked and So that must mean that I am called to love like Christ loves. That's pretty easy to say, but how do I do that? Because the bottom line is what we have to understand is this, is love is much bigger than a word. Love is an action. Love is something that we do. Love is something that we perform. It is not simply just saying, I love you. It's not simply just saying, I love this or I love that, but love is what we do. People ought to know that we love them without us ever having to tell them we love them. So what does it mean to love? How do we know if we're loving? How do we know if we're walking in the same manner that Jesus Christ walked? How do we know if we're loving the way that he loved? I want you to flip to a very common passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you know, we've, you're already looking and you're seeing verses four through eight. And many of you in this room probably had these scriptures read at your wedding. 
And when you read that, man, this is always something good and sweet to read at a wedding. But I wonder how many marriages truly live by this. It is like this little blip on the radar that we read these verses at the wedding, then we can forget about it. Because that's kind of the spiritual thing to do, right? We just read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and we read these verses and it's just gonna happen. No, it's something that we gotta do. And so when we look at verses four through eight, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with me, the tr- with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so as we mentioned last week, we we've made reference that we use the book of 1 John as the litmus test to to the believers to help us see where we're at in our journey and our relationship with Christ. And so I did just that. I, I got alone with the Lord this week and I began to look at love as patient and I asked the Holy Spirit, God, show me where I fell at loving people. Show me, God, where I fell at loving people. And so while we look at this list, it's something that we can very easily, a lot of us probably can even memorize that list. But I've never really broken it down and taken every single word from this list and examined my own heart through the lenses of this list. Now look, I wish I could say this morning that we were just gonna end on a high note, that we're gonna end with just a big old celebratory song and we're just gonna go nuts in here, but my heart's desire is that when we leave here today, that we live here today and realize how far we've gotta go to walk in the same manner that he walked. I've asked the Holy Spirit to convict you. And the reason that I ask him to convict you is because he's already convicted me and I said, Lord, I'm ready to do somebody else. And so what I'm about to ask you to do is gonna be difficult. It's gonna be humbling. But my prayer is, is that it's gonna open a lot of our eyes to see what it's gonna take for us to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so what we're gonna do is I'm gonna ask you in just a moment that I'm gonna go through every one of those words and give you the definition and the reality of what it means. And what I want you to do is examine your heart and say, God, do I love like that? Do I love like that? Now look, here's the easy thing to do. The easy thing to do, especially for us spouses, is when we go down this list, praise God he said that because I know she needs to work on that one. That's very easy to do. We can very quickly point out where everybody else fails at this. But what I'm gonna ask you to do in just a moment is to put your blinders on. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to stare deep into your heart and reveal to you where we fail.
Now look, this is not something that's a popular message. Because a lot of times we don't like to talk about conviction. But church, it's time that we raise the bar. It's time that we set the standards a little bit higher for those who are walking with Christ. Because guess what? There's a lost and a dying world who needs to see the light that is reflected from us. And that is Jesus Christ. And the only way that that's going to happen is when we begin to walk in the manner that he walked. So here we go. Examine your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now. Love is patient, meaning that it's slow to anger and it bears with others' imperfections. Love is kind, meaning that it meets the needs of others with no repayment. Meets the needs of others with no repayment. How many times do we do something good and want somebody to recognize it? Wanted to be pat on the back for it. Love is not jealous, meaning that it's not greedy or selfish. Love does not brag, it is not arrogant. Simply means that we attempt to make others jealous. Love does not act unbecomingly, meaning that love is courteous. It is polite and it's sensitive to others' feelings. Love does not seek its own, meaning again that it's not selfish and it doesn't demand rights. Love is not provoked, meaning that it doesn't have a hair trigger temper. Love doesn't cause people to walk on eggshells that are around us. Love does not take account a wrong suffered, meaning that it doesn't keep a tally of wrongs or bear a grudge until the wrong is paid for. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, meaning that it doesn't gloat about sin, but it grieves for the sin of others. Love rejoices in the truth, meaning that it celebrates repentance. Love bears all things, meaning that it doesn't broadcast others' problems, but it helps carry others' problems. Love hopes all things, and that means to refuse to take failure as the final. Love believes all things, meaning that it's not suspicious and it doesn't doubt a person's character. Love endures all things. The word endures there, I love what it says, but it, the word endure means to sustain an assault of an enemy. But to endure all things means that, I love how it's simple-minded, it says love hangs in there. Love perseveres in sight, in spite. So if you're anything like me this morning, I've got a long way to go when it comes to walking in the same manner that he did. 
Because I can look at that list and I wish I could just say it was one. But there's a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of ways that I realize that I don't walk in the manner that he did. But you know what's so humbling about that? As we look at this list and these characteristics of love, do you realize that this is the way the Father loves you? This is the way our Heavenly Father loves us. Thank God His love is patient. Thank God His love is kind. Thank God His love is, is not jealous and it, is, it doesn't brag, it's not arrogant. Thank God His love doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. And a big old asterisk. Thank God that Jesus doesn't take an account for wrong suffered of all the times I rejected him. Thank God that he doesn't rejoice for my unrighteousness, but he advocates for it. He rejoices in the truth. He has hope for me. He believes in me. Thank God that his love hangs in there. Thank God that Jesus Christ's love hangs in there for me. You see, Jesus Christ loves us with no failure. There's not one characteristics on this list that he hasn't done and that he doesn't continue to do. And with that being said, as the Holy Spirit of God revealed to you this morning, which I'm sure he did, as he revealed it to you, remember what we read at the beginning of the day. As the Holy Spirit reveals that to you in your heart, the advocate Jesus Christ is saying, that one's paid for. That one's paid for. That one's paid for. And I know that's a very sobering thought that even in the midst of all of our struggles, of all of our shortcomings, that he continues to say, Father, that one's paid for. That one's paid for. But I don't know about you, but a love like that love like that is worth living for. And so the way that we respond, church, is we take whatever the Spirit of God revealed to you in your heart today and, and we say, God, thank you that you've revealed to me how I don't walk the way that you walk. But God, I need help in that. God, I need help in that. 
But you know what, I would ask this question before we even as believers deal with how we fail to walk in the same manner that he does. I would wonder this morning if there's someone in this room that has never fully understood what Jesus Christ did and continues to do for you. You know, maybe some circumstances in your life, some consequences in your life have brought you to a place where you're just looking for answers. I'm not here today to tell you that if you give your life to Christ that all those consequences are going to go away. But I will tell you today, if you surrender your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, you have an advocate who is looking at the Father and says, that one's paid for. And when he says that one's paid for, while you face the consequences of your living in opposition to God's word, the one thing that I will promise you is this. Jesus will be made real to you. And as you walk through the consequences that you are having to walk through because of you living for your flesh, this is when you begin to come to see the promises of God become a reality. This is when you will hear him come to life and say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so maybe you're here this morning if you never trusted Jesus Christ as your savior. I want you to do something and I'm, a lot of times don't do this, but I want every head bow and every eye closed. If the Spirit of God right now is knocking on your heart's door, and to be quite honest, you're miserable right now, and you're wishing that this morning would come to an end quick so you could get out of here. I would ask you this morning to be thankful for that knocking on your heart's door. It's no accident that you're here. It's no accident that you've got to hear this morning what Jesus Christ has done for you, what he continues to do for you. And then if this morning, if you've never placed your faith in him, if you've never asked Jesus Christ to save you and to be the Lord of your life, then I wanna invite you to do that this morning. For the word of God says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I know that may scare you. You may be, Brian, I don't understand this. I don't, I don't understand a lot of this th- stuff. I don't know what to pray. I don't even know how to have a conversation with God. The moment you begin to converse with God, you have an advocate. And the Holy Spirit is speaking on your behalf. Because when I was 12 and I asked the Lord to save me, I said, God, save me. That was all I knew to pray. And so this morning, if that's you and you're here and you say, Brian, I want to trust Jesus as my savior today. I want you to put your hand up and put it right back down. Anybody, anybody, anybody. Now for the rest of us, I want you to look up and I want you to 
do two things for me before we dismiss this morning. I can promise you that if you've listened to the word of God this morning, not listened to me, but if you have listened to the word of God today, you've realized and the Holy Spirit has revealed to you areas of your life that you don't love well. Because if you can sit there and say, no, Brian, I got all those down. You're a liar. Not to be me, but Jesus Christ is the only one that perfected that style love. So if you've perfected it, I would like to have a conversation with you because I guess your name is Jesus. But church, if the Holy Spirit revealed this to you today, it's time we do business with God. And we come to a place of repentance where we ask the blood of the lamb to forgive us. We ask the blood of the lamb to lead us, to guide us, to help us to walk in the manner that he walked. People are gonna know we're his disciples by the way we love each other. It's pretty simple. But maybe this morning you're just thankful and you've already done business with God. We're about to sing about a marvelous love. And maybe you don't know the song, it's an old song, but I want you to just look at the lyrics of this song and be reminded of the marvelous love that God has for you. And it was exemplified by Him sending His Son to love you. And so I want you to stand to your feet this morning and I want you just to be obedient with God. If God wants you in this altar to do business with Him, I want you to step out. I want you to step out in church. Don't let pride keep you in your seats. Maybe you've dealt with salvation this morning and Jesus is knocking on your heart's door and you didn't have the courage to raise your hand. I would love to speak with you. If you wanna come and talk to me, I'm sure there's people beside you that would love to speak to you, but don't leave here today without doing business with him. But let's be obedient this morning.